So I have a question uh, for you. How many of you have ever used the phrase, what a mess? Um, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing that if you're a parent, you've probably used it more than if you're not. But I, I think probably all of us have had opportunity to, to use that phrase more than once. It could be a little thing like, you know, walking into your child's bedroom and uh, exclaiming, oh, what a mess. It might be something a little bit bigger uh, and of your own fault uh, or making, such as happened this week when we were celebrating Isaiah's birthday and he had decided that he wanted uh, homemade chicken wings for his birthday meal and, and had all the grease all nice and hot and was going to put the chicken wings into the fryer, but there was too much liquid on the wings, and when I put them down, the grease exploded all over the place. I mean, it erupted, and of course, we have a propane stove, so it hit the flame, and then flames are shooting all over the place, and uh, luckily, I was, uh, I was able to get a lid on it to smother it out, and so almost as quickly as it happened, it was over, uh, but I was covered in, in grease, uh, just only one time burning, that was nice, all over the stove, all over the counter, all over the floor, smoke on the ceiling, uh, you know, all of this stuff. It took a lot longer to clean up than it did to make. And that's kind of the way messes work too in life, isn't it? Messes take a whole lot more uh, work and time and diligence and effort to clean up than they do to make. And yeah, you know, a messy bedroom or a kitchen, that's one thing, but some messes are much bigger than that, and uh, our heart goes out. We think of what's happening down in Houston right now. Uh, Can you imagine five feet of rain, hurricane winds? All of that destruction happened in a relatively short period of time. But you got to know there's people walking around that city right now shaking their heads and going, what a mess. And that's a mess that's going to take months, even years to clean up. But here's the thing. The messes that happen to us in life aren't just physical, are they? We get messes in our personal life. Emotional, relational, spiritual messes. They happen. And as I was reading 2 Corinthians this summer, it just, it just kind of struck me how much of this book that the Apostle Paul uh, dedicates to dealing with messes. And as I looked at it, I thought, there is some encouraging and positive instruction for us and how we can deal with the messes of life. So I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to doing this study. Grab your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians. I mean, I always like to have people look up the passage in the Bible uh, that we're using uh, as our text that week because I want you to know that what we teach is coming from God's Word, that we're following uh, what it says there. And if you, if you don't know uh, your way around the Bible, that's okay. Uh, this is a comfortable, safe place to begin to learn that. In fact, I had Nick this week uh, create this like, cool graphic to help people if, you, if you're not sure where to find these things in the Bible. And that's the Black Pew Bible under the chair. So if you need that, this is going to help you do that. So every week, uh, you can easily get to your spot in the Bible. Second 
Corinthians. It's about three quarters of the way through uh, the New Testament. You can grab that. And uh, we're going to be looking at just verses 1 and 2 as we get started this morning of chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So, at the beginning of this study, I wanted to make sure we established a few basic facts to make sure we're all on the same page. Like all ancient letters, it begins with the author, so you know who's writing you the letter. And so the first word in the first verse is Paul letting us know right away who wrote it. But then he goes on to describe a little bit of who he is. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And you know, next to Jesus himself, Paul is probably the most well-known, uh, celebrated figure in, in all of the New Testament. Uh, of the 26 books that make up the New Testament, he wrote at least half of them. He, he was the man that God uh, used to develop and establish uh, and start the Christian church outside the boundaries of Israel. You know, Peter was used within Israel, but the rest of the world, it was Paul that God was using to, to establish his church out there. And um, most of you probably know a bit of Paul's story. He was a very, very devout Jewish man raised in a very strict Jewish home. He was studying to become a Pharisee, which was the most legalistic, strict group within uh, the Jewish faith. They were the ones who, more than anything else, more than anyone else, believed that you had to earn your way to heaven. You had to work your way to heaven. You had to do everything right in order to get to heaven. You had to follow God's laws. You had to keep his commandments. You had to make yourself worthy to do it. And they were also very, very good at condemning anybody that didn't follow everything the way they thought it should be followed. That's who these Pharisees were. And, uh, uh, obviously, when Jesus came around and started preaching about faith and love, uh, that didn't go over real well with the Pharisees, and so they eventually uh, had him uh, arrested and, and crucified. But, but we all know that was part of God's plan in uh, providing for us salvation, and uh, uh, his, he shed his blood. He took the penalty of sin, which is death, which we celebrated in communion this morning. He paid that penalty on our behalf so that uh, now, because God uh, raised him from the dead three days later, uh, and he lives forever in, in eternity at the right hand of God now to offer salvation to us. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then what Jesus did on the cross is applied to us. It, it, it's as if we were the ones who died. He took our place. He died for us. So that penalty of death is taken care of for us. And now we can be forgiven and have new life, not based on anything we have done, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. Well, most of the Pharisees and the religious, Jewish religious leaders, they could not, would not accept this. So when faith in Jesus Christ began to spread, they did everything they could to put the kibosh on that right away, right? They were going to stamp this down. They were going to squash it. 
And there was one young Pharisee in training named Saul who was extremely good at this. He was hyper on it. He believed in the death penalty for anybody that was following Jesus. He put his support to that. And he wanted to be on the forefront of of squelching this, this new religion of faith in Jesus. And so he was doing what he could to stop it. He even got letters from the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Uh, legal authority amongst the Jews in their land to be able to go to different cities, uh, not only outside of Jerusalem, but even outside of Israel and, and find anybody there who might be following Jesus and throw them into prison. And of course, it's not just thrown into prison. Uh, There was a great deal of abuse, beatings, things like that, that would go on with that type of endeavor. And he was hot on the trail doing all of that. And as he was on his way to Damascus, a city north of Israel, up up in Syria, to arrest any Christians he found there, God blindsided him with a, a huge beam of light from heaven, stopped him in his tracks, and, and uh, recruited him to become a Christian. Now, you know, most of us, had some other human tell us about Jesus, right? You know, uh, maybe a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a good friend told you about Jesus. Uh, Saul had Jesus himself speak to him from heaven. So it was a rather dramatic conversion event. And as you can imagine, it greatly impacted his life. He went from persecuting Christians to being one from doing everything he could to squash this new faith to spreading it everywhere he went. And he himself ended up enduring much abuse and persecution because he would not let go of his faith in Jesus Christ. He was used by God actually assigned by God to be the leader of this new movement to spread it out beyond the borders of Jerusalem to the Gentile world. And, and, and that's what he meant when he said he was an apostle by the will of God. For you see this young man named Saul during this time of conversion and now uh, uh, preaching Jesus had his name changed from Saul to Paul. So Paul, who wrote this letter, was that man. He was a man who knew what it was like to live in this world apart from Jesus Christ, in fact, to be hostile to Christianity, to Jesus. And he also was a man who knew what it was like to be fully devoted to Christ. He he enjoyed many spiritual mountaintop experiences those kind where you feel so close to God and, and you know that God is powerfully moving in your life and you, you, you revel in that relationship that with you, you have with him, that mountaintop experience. But he also walked in multiple deep, dark valleys. He knew what it was like to suffer discouragement, even despair. He knew what it was like to have everything you needed, to have an abundance, as he uh, exclaimed it, to, to, to have all that he needed for daily living and beyond. And he knew what it was like to run out of the paycheck before you run out a month, 
to have nothing to live on, to be in great need, to wonder where his next meal was going to come from. In other words, he had a lot of the same experiences that we have. This, this was a guy who was like us, and this is who wrote that book. Now, in the opening statement, he also goes on to mention Timothy. He was a, one of a favorite traveling companion with us. But then he goes on to talk about who this letter was originally written to. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. When he says church, he means people. Because we understand that the church is the people. It was those who were gathered together to worship God, to learn about what it means to follow Jesus and to be on mission with Him. It was a local gathering of the body of Christ, just as we're experiencing together this morning. And I don't want you to get thrown off by the word saints that he uses in there, as if Paul was only addressing some super-Christians who happened to live in, in, in the area. The Bible uses the word saint to describe every single believer. It has nothing to do with your behavior or the amount of good works that you've been able to do. It's about who you are. Uh, The word got corrupted uh, when some churches started using it to try to denote some special, specific uh, believers uh, that the church then elevated to some supposed higher status. But that's all just man-made ideology. If we stick to what the Bible says, we're all saints. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, because it's about your identity, not your conduct. The word has the basic meaning of separate or set apart. So the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God sets you apart from the rest of the world to belong to him. That, that's who a saint is, someone who belongs to God. And, and you have that designation when you put your faith in Jesus. This book was originally written to them, but it is applicable to every follower of Jesus Christ from that point on. So it's for us as well. So do, do we have anything in common with the people at Corinth? What was their culture like? What was their world like? What were they like? Well, if we were going to put it in one easy word, two words, be messed up. They were messed up people in a messed up world. In Paul's day, the city of Corinth was a, was a happening place. It was a, a rich and influential town. The people living there had access to the best of the goods uh, that this world had to offer. Uh, Corinth is in Greece, only about 45 miles away from Athens. You can, you can see it up there. And you got that little narrow strip of land between Corinth and As, uh, Athens. That's called an isthmus. You know, I'd really like to shake the hand of whoever uh, coined the term isthmus because 
because I'm thinking that's the only word in the English language that can make a, a, a Harvard PhD person sound like a Kentucky hillbilly because nobody can say isthmus and, and, and get away with it very well. It just comes out that way. But that's what you have there. Uh, Corinth is on that isthmus and on a big plateau there, and, and uh, uh, there was no way to, to get by Corinth for, in terms of a trade route from, from southern Greece to northern Greece or north to south. You had to go through Corinth. It was the main trade route in there. And you can see it had that huge, good, protected harbor and, and, and bay in there. So it was the prime shipping place for that whole part of the world. That, it's the Mediterranean Sea underneath them there. And everything coming to the Mediterranean came up through Corinth. And so it was a metropolitan happening city. Therefore, there was a huge focus on finances, on money and possessions. And, and just like in our world today and, and just like pretty much the ancient world all around back then, there was a great deal of difference between the haves and the have-nots, but everybody there in Corinth wanted their piece of the pie. There was their focus on getting what they could get. Sounds a little bit like American culture, doesn't it? Corinth was also known for something else back in that day, something beyond what even the rest of the pagan cities around them were known for. And that was their sexual immorality. In fact, it was so prevalent in Corinth and it was known for it so much that uh, for its debauchery and, and, and its sexual sin that the word Corinth actually became a verb. And to Corinthianize meant to hold a drunken orgy party. That's how well known they were for it. If you called a girl, a Corinthian girl, you were calling her a prostitute because that's what they were known for. The temple of Aphrodite, the go Greek goddess of love, was the main temple in Corinth. It overshadowed everything in the city, literally. Uh, it was built on a, on a plateau up above the city, and that temple employed over a thousand prostitutes. And every night, those prostitutes would descend from the temple into the city streets walking around plying their wares for anybody that wanted them. Is our culture like that? Well, maybe not exactly like that, but we certainly live in a sex-crazed environment, don't we? Look at the scourge of pornography. The pornography industry is just rampant in the United States. There's, a, there's an organization, good organization, uh, you should know about called Enough is Enough, uh, and they're focused on limiting online pornography. Uh, their motto is, is uh, making the Internet safer for children and families. And... Um, They've, of course, done a lot of research specifically on the online things. And, and uh, here's some statistics from them from back in 2014. Um, so these are three years old now. Did you know that almost one-third of every single Internet site is related to pornography? 30%. Almost a third. Porn sites get more visitors every month than Netflix, 
Amazon, Twitter combined. And they're following the money trail. According to the research, the online, again, there's other avenues, but the online porn industry makes over $3,000 per second. Per second. Do we live in a sex-crazed culture? And it's not just pornography, as bad as that is, right? It's accepted in mainstream. We use sex to sell cars and food processors and whatever else, right? There's magazines on the rack dedicated to teaching our young girls how they can look sexy and be sexy. And then, of course, we get mad as a culture when women are treated as sex objects. Just like the Corinthians, we live in a morally messed up world. Uh, Corinth was uh, also the home to the Isthmian Games. There was two great big games back then, the Olympics and the Isthmian Games. And, And in fact... The Isthmian Games were actually, at times, more popular and bigger than the Olympics. And they were obsessed with and in pursuit of the perfect body. Men became heroes for winning sporting events, and women were put on display for their beauty. You know, not like we'd do anything like that here in America, of course, though, I mean... Uh, we wouldn't idolize anybody just for being a great athlete and, and wouldn't put a woman up on a pedestal for, for being good-looking, right? Did you know every year People magazine puts out their most beautiful people issue? It's the biggest selling issue of the year. Just like the Corinthians, we live in a messed-up world. Money, sex, power, that's what drives the culture. It's the same today as it was back then. Crime was rampant in Corinth. Theft and uh, rape and abuse, those were common. People had to stay in groups uh, in order to be safe. They didn't dare walk down a dark alley alone. Fear often ruled in people's hearts against what might happen next. Again, does that sound like our own country? We have crime. We have threats of terrorism, drug abuse, corruption. It's a messy world, isn't it? So maybe you're saying to yourself, yeah, you know, it really is a messy world out there. But thank goodness for the church in here. Because, you know, it's not messy in the church. Or is it? Maybe it's not messy in quite the same way as people might imagine. But the truth is, if we picture church as a place that is free from the messiness of the world, where people always live the way they're supposed to live and always treat each other the way they're supposed to treat each other, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because you know what? There's messed up people in the church. And I'm one of them. And so are you.
If you read 1 Corinthians, which, by the way, I'd highly recommend you do that this week. We're, we're studying 2 Corinthians, but some of what we come across will, will be based or, or, or come from what flows out of 1 Corinthians. And, and even if you're a really slow reader, that's okay because 10 minutes a day and you'll be done, 10, 12 minutes a day, you'll be done before next Sunday. So read 1 Corinthians and, and you'll find out that was a church full of messed up people. I mean, there was immorality uh, in the form of gross sexual sin that even the pagans really wouldn't have approved of going on in that church. And people knew about it, but they were unwilling to confront one another in Christian love. There were cliques of people within the church, cliques in the church, sporting a holier-than-thou attitude, not towards outsiders, but towards each other. Hey, I'm a better Christian than you are because... You know, I was baptized by Peter and, you know, you were just baptized by Apollos. And, you know, obviously that puts me on a higher status than you. That was going on in the church. Or there were others who were looking down their noses at others. Again, this spiritual pride thinking, I'm way better than you because of my spiritual gift. Because my spiritual gift's way more important than yours. That's how they were living in the church. There were people coming to the potluck dinners who were gorging themselves and hoarding all the food, eating until they were stuffed, leaving nothing for the truly needy and hungry who were coming behind them. And some who were getting drunk on the communion wine in the church. There were broken relationships, friction, to the point of, let's sue one another in the church, lawsuits going against each other in the church. Corinth was a messed up church because they had messed up people in it. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I mean, but that was them, you know. I mean, our church, we might not be perfect, but we're not, we're not that bad, are we? I believe there's two types of bad, messed up churches and one type of good, messed up churches. First type of bad, messed up church is the kind that refuses to deal with sin. Not going to take sin seriously. We're going to ignore it. We're going to sweep it under the rug. There's not going to be any accountability amongst its members and one another. That's kind of what the Corinthian church seemed to be doing. Bad, messed up church number two is the church where everybody pretends that I'm okay. That everything is going just fine. That my life is, is running along smooth. We're, I'm just clicking on all cylinders. Everything's fine. I put on my good fake Christian smiley mask for Sundays so that nobody will know that there's any struggles or any sin or any hurt in my life because I don't want anybody else to think I'm messed up because obviously nobody else is messed up in church. And everybody's pretending that nobody's messed up. And that is a bad messed up church just like the first one that won't deal with sin because it leaves both people stuck in their messiness. So what's the good kind of church? 
Well, the good kind of church is to say, yeah, we're messed up. But we're going to be real with each other about it. We're going to be honest and authentic in our struggles and in our failures so that we can come together and move beyond them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, coming on Sunday morning and, and, and getting a line up here on the front stage and everybody has to confess every fault and failure in front of everybody else. That's not what I'm talking about. But it does mean that you find a place within the church, a smaller group of people you're connecting with where you can be brutally honest with one another about what's going on in your life. Because that's the only way to move beyond them. You got to be able to know that you can share what's happening and you're going to be loved and supported and encouraged to take the biblical path of moving forward and beyond that struggle. And that's one of the huge benefits of, of choosing to become a part of one of the BLTs, the adult small groups, or, or celebrate recovery, or some other type of small group thing that is going on where you can really get to know somebody because you don't do that on Sunday morning. We can't deeply connect on Sunday morning, but you can within these smaller authentic groups. And we all come to a messed up church because we're messed up people. And we bring the mess in with us, but it's okay. And here's the reason why it's okay. Because of the way Paul ends this greeting to this church. Look what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying to that messed up church back in Corinth? Grace. That's the only thing that deals with mess. The grace of God. And, and I want you to understand that the grace of God cannot deal with the messiness in your life if you're not admitting the messiness. If you're not willing to be real and honest about it. And so a good, messed up church is the one where we accept God's grace for ourselves and then learn to show God's grace to one another. So even in the church, because we're messed up, sometimes we'll stumble, we'll fall, we'll sin. And our natural inclination is to hide it because we're embarrassed, because we're ashamed, because we think nobody else ever falls and stumbles. Because they're all perfect, right? We have this perfect church. We need to get past that to where we're 
where we know we are all there. So then when we mess up, we can begin to minister to one another in those small groups of people that, that you've connected with so that you can be real with them. And, and, and we can start putting into practice Galatians 6, 1 and 2, where it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, he's talking to the church there, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, you don't have to raise your hand here, but what would you prefer when you blow it, when you fall and when you sin? To have some holier-than-thou Christians come up and kick you while you're down or to have a group come along beside you and restore the one who has fallen to help you bear the burden? Because each of us is messed up, Guess what might happen within the church? Someone might hurt you, or you might hurt someone else. But if we have some people coming alongside of us to help us, to hold us accountable, to call us on that, then wouldn't we be able to implement something like, say, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you? That'd be a pretty good messed up church to be part of, wouldn't it? So church isn't a place where everybody has it all together. Church is a place where a bunch of messed up people living in a messed up world with messed up families can come together and worship a God who's the master at fixing messes. It's a place where we can learn to give and receive the grace that God offers so that we can experience the peace that He wants to give us so that we can be the impact in our families and community and world that he wants us to be. And I think 2 Corinthians is going to help us do that. That's why I'm looking forward to this study because it tells us that no matter how messed up you might feel right now, no matter what's going on in your life, personal mess, relational mess, work mess, world mess, I don't know, There's hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful as we have celebrated today for the grace of God in Jesus Christ that is ours. And God, may we all be able to move to that point where we can find our fellow believers within the church to be honest with, to be authentic and real so that we can move beyond pretending, move beyond playing to being the church the way you designed us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.